You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you now to join me in Matthew chapter 1, the very first book in the New Testament and the first of the four gospels, or good news of Jesus Christ. So if you uh, have your Bible with you this morning, I ask you to to join me there. You'll see in the seat uh, in front of you in the tray below, there's a blue Bible there. If you don't have a Bible, that's for you, and uh, and you're free to take that home with you if that would be a a blessing to you or someone that you know. So feel free to take that with you. I am am really excited and uh, honored to be kicking off this book today for a couple of reasons. First, this is it. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell the incredible story of Jesus, who he is, what he did, what he came to do, how he fulfilled all the promises of Scripture, and what that means for us now. Each Gospel writer goes about telling the good news of Jesus in their own unique way. Uh, Matthew is a Jewish man and is writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and so much of what he has to say is meant to appeal to that specific crowd. He knows them and understands what is important to them, which is evident in his writing. And the other reason why I'm excited this morning to be starting Matthew with you is uh, related to us as a church and where we've been over the last several years. So some of you might remember this, but for the sake of everyone, Uh, I just want to pull back really far and take a look at where we've been as a church over the last four years or so. So you you might remember that beginning in April of 2018, we walked through the book of John together. And so since then, we've been in several different books of the Bible. In the Old Testament, we've walked through Malachi, Lamentations, Ruth, Judges, and several of the Psalms. And since the Gospel of John we spent a little bit of time in the New Testament, in Philippians and James. This is, a, this is a very significant thing. We often say that as we open the Bible and study God's Word together, the Bible, the Bible begins to open us. And the more time we spend in the Bible, the more we begin to see how it works together in telling the grand narrative of God's redemptive plan throughout time, continuing to right now. Think of it this way. The entire Bible narrative is preparation for the presentation of and participation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's this whole story. The Old Testament, as we saw, gives us glimpses all the way through of what was to come in Jesus Christ. Little seeds all throughout the Old Testament pointing to a better man than Adam a better father than Abraham, a better king than King David, a Messiah, and as Isaiah foretold 800 years before Jesus came, one that would be born of a virgin and be given the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The New Testament, after the Gospels, shows us how the early believers lived in light of the coming of Christ what living life in repentance and belief through faith in Jesus looks like. And now, in Matthew, 
We have another opportunity to look at the life and work of Jesus that the world was waiting for and that changed the world forever. This is it. So whether this is the first book of the Bible you've ever read, or if this is a return trip, Matthew wants to introduce us, all of us, to Jesus. So let's begin this journey together through Matthew, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll just read through verse 17 today. The genealogy of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And, excuse me, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathen, and Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So... All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to, to the Christ, 14 generations. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that even in this list of names, you have something powerful for us. And so would you meet us this morning now? And help us to see your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I bet you were expecting something a little different this morning than another list of names. <laughs> if you've been with us for the last several weeks through Ezra and Nehemiah, you are by now very accustomed to these lists of names. And you're probably excited, maybe, to be done with these lists. But alas, that's all we have this morning as we kick off the first chapter of the New Testament. And you might be thinking to yourself, what in the world do we have to talk about with all of these names that I can barely pronounce? But I do believe that God has something important to tell us. 
I do believe that God was speaking through Matthew and that Matthew knew that it was important to start with these names. A good communicator will tell you that one of the most powerful tools in communication is first, to know your audience, and second, begin and end your message with strength and clarity. Matthew is leveraging both of these techniques in the first 17 verses. Embedded in these names is the, is the precursor to everything Matthew is going to teach us in this book. He's laying the foundation for what he wants us to know in his gospel. Embedded in the names is a message that this king is going to think differently about nationality, about ethnicity, about gender, about broken families, and about social significance. All in this list of names. So Matthew was a tax collector. He's a Jewish man. He was certainly treated as an outsider because of his profession. As a tax collector for the Roman Empire, he would have needed to be working in collaboration with the Roman occupiers of Palestine. So he would have been seen as a traitor. He would have been uh, likely a, a very lonely and isolated man. The brief story of his conversion is found in, in chapter 9 of this book. He doesn't spend a whole lot of time telling us about it, but this is what it says. It's chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. But what he says next in, in verses 10 through 13 points a little bit more at what he's talking about. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Jesus had changed Matthew. He doesn't tell us the specifics of his conversion, but it happened. So much so that when, when Jesus called him out, he followed Jesus without hesitation. Jesus' acceptance of Matthew was against the attitude of the prevailing culture. And this is a significant theme for Matthew that he wants you and I to think about. Matthew's goal in this book is to introduce us to Jesus. He wants us to know that this person, this Jesus, this king, is a king who keeps his promises, who delivers and redeems his people, and will do it in a way that's completely unexpected by being against the prevailing culture in many ways. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises, and by the end of this gospel... Matthew wants to convince you and me that Jesus is so trusty, trustworthy that you will want to do what Matthew did and follow Jesus. That you will see Jesus for who he is, what he's done for you and for me, and be totally and utterly compelled to follow him. And Matthew begins his pursuit of that by first giving us a list of names. The early readers of Matthew would have immediately 
recognize that Matthew is not trying to present a complete genealogy of Jesus that included every single name. From the time of Abraham to Jesus is about 2,000 years, so obviously there are some omissions here. The phrase, the father of, what was commonly used even, even to refer to remote ancestors. So, so uh, Matthew's goal was likely not to be some sort of, of like ancient ancestry.com expert, you know. He was probably making a different point. And what was that point? To prove that God always keeps his promises. Jesus was the fulfillment of them all. And we can put our trust in him. And how does a list of names begin to prove that? Well, let's, let's first look at the mechanics of the list. You'll notice, because Matthew is pretty explicit about this, that the names were organized in three distinct sections. Part one is Abraham to, D- to David. Part two is David to the deportation to Babylon, or the end of the Davidic line of kings. And part three is the exile from Babylon to the birth of Jesus who is called the son of David. Did you notice how many times Matthew mentions David's name in these first 17 verses? Five times. Of all the names, David is mentioned five times. One way to know that you're reading something significant in the Bible is when the writer begins to repeat things that he's already said. So the fact that David is being mentioned here multiple times is meant to point to something. Matthew is emphasizing David because the Jewish people would all agree that David was the hero, the hero of their faith. If I were to take a poll in the room right now and and try to figure out all your favorite heroes, there would be very little consensus. But for the Jewish people, there was no question. It was David. Matthew knows this calling to mind the promise of God to provide a king and linking that king to Jesus would have been very significant. Another literary device Matthew used here is something we've learned about before called chiastic structures or a, or a chiasm. It's, uh, it's usually there uh, to, to guide the reader to something important. So there'll be, there'll be a build to something in a passage And then in the middle of that passage will be something that the writer wants you to pay attention to. And then after that, it'll have a sort of a descending structure to the end. Well, we see that here in 1 through 17. There's this list that builds up to David, which ends that first section. And then the second section begins again with David. And so it's meant to say, yes, let's pay attention to David. And then the descending structure ends and terminates in Joseph the carpenter. And then things get really interesting right there. So we see this repetition in King David's name. Matthew is saying, yes, I want you to to think about David. I want you to think deeply about David because I have have two surprises for you in this list. One you're not going to like very much, and one is going to change your life forever. Another repetitive element are the three sets of 14 generations. So so keep in mind, in the Jewish culture, there was a lot of significance, spiritual significance with numbers. And so the number three, the number seven, the number 14, they all had special importance in the Jewish culture. So so some theologians believe this separation of these three distinct periods was merely a device for memorization. 
And I, in my study of this and, and thinking through this, I, this is not in the Bible. This is just my own personal reflection on what Matthew's trying to do here. I think he was employing way more intelligence and, and forethought and strategy in terms of what he was trying to communicate than simply to help us memorize all these names. Others find it, other theologians find significance in the fact that each of the 14 generations consists of two sevens. Seven being a significant number in the Bible referring to completeness or, or wholeness, the perfect completion. So some think that with Jesus being the end of the sixth seven, he represents the beginning of the seventh seven, the perfect fulfillment. Another suggestion by other theologians still is that Matthew was employing a literary device known as gematria. Gematria is, is the practice of assigning a numerical value to a, to a name or a word or a phrase or a, or a letter. So, so in Hebrew, David's name would be spelled D-W-D. D has a value of four, W has a value of six, D has a, has a value of four, 14. This device would have further emphasized the role David was playing in Matthew's genealogy and evidence for Jesus descending from the line of kings as the son of David. So no matter which of these theories is right, Matthew was certainly attempting to make the connection. I mean, he's coming out strong here to make the connection that their Old Testament hero, heroes, Abraham and King David, were the fathers of this Jesus. And this Jesus proves that God keeps his promises. The promise that Abraham would be the father of a nation, the promise that God would provide a great king, the promise that God would deliver his people from captivity. It's as if to say, this God that you know, that you are familiar with, you have read, you have studied, you know this God. These periods in history that you, that you are well aware of, see how God was faithful to fulfill each of these promises. And now, here's another promise for you. It's another promise that's been fulfilled, and this promise is the promise you've been waiting for. So the intentional organization of the names, the literary devices... The calling to mind of 2,000 years of history would have been significant. Something special is going on here. Matthew is like pulling out all the literary fireworks to emphasize the importance of this genealogy and what it means. So after noticing the mechanics, the early readers would have recognized the unusual inclusion of some names in this list. First of all, of all, the, of all the 42 men that Matthew could have included in this abbreviated genealogy, there's a handful of them that just don't ring a bell. We don't know a lot about them. They're not very significant or important. Little is known about some of these guys. Now, contrasted to that, and even more unusual for the time, is Matthew's inclusion of several women in the genealogy. Remember, in, in Jesus' time, the attitude, the attitude toward women was not very favorable. The culture was highly patriarchal, very misogynistic. So in order to understand how absolutely radical it was that Matthew included the names of these women, 
I think it's helpful to understand that they would have thought about women as, as simply a commodity for a man. Women aided men in their acquisition of honor. They were, they were really afforded no respect as autonomous human beings. I want to read this, an excerpt from an ancient book called the, the Book of Sirach, which is, which is not included in the Hebrew Bible that we are familiar with. It's included in a, in a collection of writings called the Apocrypha. And this, this was written probably 200 years before the birth of Jesus, and so it would probably have been familiar to the people Matthew was writing to. And it really encapsulates the, the prevailing attitude. This is from chapter 42 of, of this book, just a few verses. It's a section written to fathers about their daughters. Listen to what it says. Do not let her, that's the daughter, parade her beauty before any man or spend her time among married women. For from garments comes the moth and from a woman comes woman's wickedness. Better is the wickedness of a man than a woman who does good. It is woman who brings shame and disgrace. Okay? That's chapter 42. Subsequent to that are chapters 44 to 50. A lot of chapters. It's one long genealogy. The whole thing. Guess how many women are included in that genealogy? Zero. Zero. Get it? Matthew's doing something here outrageous. Matthew includes Tamar, Ruth, Bathsheba, Rahab, and Mary. Four very recognizable women from the Old Testament and Mary, the mother of Jesus. The man at the end of this list must have a very different attitude about women. So let's pause here. What's the purpose of a genealogy? just going to give these to you just as a way to reflect on this next section that I want to share with you. The, the purpose of the genealogy is, number one, it demonstrates where you came from. Number two, it proves the, the purity of the line. And number three, it's meant to demonstrate the excellence of the person at the end of it. So I want to go through and, and look at these these women that Jesus included in this genealogy. Keep these three things in mind as we look at this. So let's, let's take a look at Tamar, okay? She's a Canaanite. The story is in Genesis 38. So don't take my word for it. All of these stories, I want you to go and read these for yourselves. This is in Genesis 38. As the story goes, Judah has two sons, Er and Onan. Er marries Tamar, but God kills Er because he was wicked. And this happened before he and Tamar had children. So Judah tells his other son, Onan, to further his brother's line by taking his brother's widow and producing offspring that would be declared heir's heir. And this was the custom at the time. So Onan was not interested in doing that, so he did not do that. And God was not pleased about that. So Onan was killed as well. So Judah told Tamar, Return to your father's home, wait for my third son, Shelah, to be old enough, and that's what we'll do at that time. Well, Shelah grew up, became old enough, was never promised to Tamar, so Tamar took matters into her own hands. She dressed, she dressed up like a harlot and uh, put herself in a place where she would run into Judah and enticed him. They came together, had sex, and she gave birth to twins. Those twins 
were Zerah and Perez. Perez continues the messianic line. That's how that happened. Rahab uh, was from Jericho. She was a prostitute. She had a, she had a flat that was kind of above the city that looked out over uh, the, the city where she, she could see the front gates. So this was on purpose. It was good for business. She could see who was coming in and out of the city. So meanwhile, uh, Joshua is outside of Jericho with his army preparing to take Jericho. And so he sends two spies into Jericho to check it out and see what's going on. And interesting that those two spies ended up in Rahab's flat, don't you think? So Rahab figures out who these guys are, learns what they're doing, and then as the soldiers are looking for the spies, Rahab hides them, lies to the soldiers and says, the spies have gone away, and the soldiers go and, and look for them elsewhere. So God was doing what he intended to do, but Rahab lied to those soldiers, and she betrayed her city by doing that. You can read about that in Joshua chapter 2. Ruth, she was an outcast. She did not belong. She was a, she was a stranger in a strange land. You might recall she was a Moabite. The Moabites came to be from the offspring of Lot's daughters by Lot. You remember that? This is Genesis 19. His daughters were afraid his line would not continue, so they gave him wine to drink. He got drunk, and they came together with their father and got pregnant. One gave birth to Moab, the father of the Moabites, the other to Ben-Ami, the father of the Amorites. And then there was the affair with Bathsheba. This is in 2 Samuel 11. You might recall that David observes Bathsheba bathing and is really taken with her. And so he sends her husband, Uriah, who's, who's the, the main general of the army, he sends Uriah out to the front line so he will be killed so that he can have Uriah to himself. Did you notice that Matthew doesn't even name her in this list? He just throws it out there. This is the little surprise Matthew had in there. I think that the readers may not have liked very much. He kind of throws it in to knock readers off the, their balance a little bit. It's as if Matthew is setting it up. He's setting it up to be like, yes, King David. What does he say in, uh, in, in verse 6? And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon. And then just, just casually by the wife of Uriah, remember? And it's like, oh, David, David wasn't, oh, he wasn't, the, he wasn't it. He wasn't it. He was part, he was part of it, but he wasn't it. And finally, Mary, this is the most striking piece of information that proves Jesus is against the prevailing attitude toward women. Okay, be honest. How many of you math geniuses tuned me out for the last five minutes because you were counting the, ge you were counting the generations? No one? Okay. Good job. Thank you. But now you want to. You want to count the generations. Let's see if it's true. Okay. There is 14 in the first section. There is 14 in the second section. 
Guess how many are in the third section? 13. There's 13 in the third section unless you count Mary. Unless you count Mary. To put Mary in the genealogy with that kind of significance was a big deal. Joseph becomes Jesus' adoptive earthly father, but right there, Matthew drops a bomb as if to say, hey, this is different. All of these names that I just told you about, this came about in a way that was human, that you understand, but this one, this one didn't. This one's different. And the very next verse, which we get to look at next week, verse 18, after this whole list of names, Matthew says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. This is different. Think about it. Think about how countercultural this story is. Think about the dishonor Mary would have brought on Joseph, her father, his family, her family. I mean, the consequences for a woman going outside of her marriage or betrothal contract was death. I mean, the situation was dire for her. Did you ever wonder why there, there was no place for them in Bethlehem? Why were they looking for a room at an inn to begin with? I don't know about you, but usually when I go to my hometown, I have family that I can stay with when I go there. Is it possible that no one in their family wanted to put them up? And so I wonder at this point what you're thinking about this so far. As I was reading through the stories of these women... How is that beginning to work on you? Do you find yourself leaning toward the, toward the side of, of judgment? Kind of looking at them and, and turning up your nose at them? Do you find yourself shaking your head in dis- disbelief? How could they do that? How could they be included in this list? Is it a little, is it a little uncomfortable to hear these stories? My guess is that if you felt uncomfortable about these stories of people long ago, you feel uncomfortable about people with stories like this now. Are there people now that you look at with that kind of superiority? Like whatever they've done somehow disqualifies them from being associated with God, but whatever you've done, well, that's not that bad. I think God has something to say about that this morning. Or maybe you began to lean to the side of guilt or shame as you began to identify in some ways with the people on this list. Is it hard for you to believe that that people with stories like this would be included? If your name appeared there, if your name appeared there and I, I went into detail about your life as the Bible goes into detail about these people's lives, would you be so embarrassed you'd leave the room and never come back? Would the shame and guilt be too overwhelming? I think God has something to say to that too. And if you'll stay, God has something to show you here about how he thinks differently than you about that. And I think there might even be a third category in here. Maybe you just don't care. Maybe you just feel kind of apathetic about this whole thing. These are people from long ago. What does that have anything to do with my life today? You remember walking through Malachi together? We talked about this 
as we studied that last book of the Old Testament in Malachi. 400 years before the coming of Jesus. It was the last word before this moment that we're studying right now. This week we're celebrating it. And the people that Malachi was writing to were just beleaguered people. They were tired. They, they began to just become skeptics and apathetic toward God and his promises. And Malachi came along to say, hey, wake up. God's promises are true. It's going to happen. And 400 years later, it did. In a way much differently than people expected. And so Jesus coming into the world to take up his throne, King Jesus sitting on his throne happened, and then the hard part about this is that when that happens, Jesus has to dethrone all of the things we have put in his place on our throne. All of the things that we think that God thinks differently about. Hear what Paul says about this in Galatians chapter 3. Verses 27 to 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Wait a minute. We are heirs of Christ? Because of Christ, we are on this list. We are one in Christ. Do you see all this coming together? In all these examples, God's redemptive work was on display such that even through the most tragic, sinful scenarios, God could and would do something incredible. God can do whatever he wants. He could have brought this about in any way he wanted. And yet, this is how he chose to do it. So let's, let's look at this genealogy, the purpose of this genealogy, a little closer. Number one, it demonstrates where you came from. This was good for inheriting property, for proving your social status, whether you were fit to be a priest, etc. Lots of different ways that that's good. The interesting thing is that none of these women in the list would have been trying to prove any of that and none of these women, except for Mary, were ethnically Jewish. So the person at the end of this list must have a different attitude about ethnicity and social significance than the prevailing culture. Number two, it proves the purity of the line. At this time, racism was rampant. Okay, Mixing of bloodlines was totally unacceptable. A genealogy could therefore be used to demonstrate purity of the bloodline. So Jesus comes along... And he's born pure through the Holy Spirit. But he's not great just because of that. His human genealogy shows that he rejects the kind of ethnocentrism that says one's own group or ethnicity or nationality is superior to that of others. This kind of reminds me of Jonah. Jonah was sent to Nineveh by God to preach to the lost people there. And Jonah did everything he could think of to not do that. He goes and gets on a ship headed in the opposite direction to get away from having to do that. And God intervened. And ultimately, the, the crew tosses Jonah overboard. And the Bible says God provided a great fish 
How nice of him. God provided a great fish that swallowed him up for three days. After God freed him from the belly of the fish, he told Jonah to go to Nineveh a second time. He's like, you're not going to not do this, buddy. This time he went, proclaimed the word of the Lord that the Lord had given him, and the people in the wicked city of Nineveh, every single one, all the way up to the king, put on sackcloth and repented to God. And Jonah was mad. This is a short book. You should read this. Jonah was mad. He couldn't believe God would show people like that grace and compassion. Grace and compassion toward the Israelites was good. That was very good. But these people, no. No way. God powerfully displayed to Jonah that he is not the God of one people group only. He is the God of every nation, tribe, and tongue. If God were the God of one people group only, the majority of us in this room, probably all of us in this room, would be hopeless people. The very fact that we are here together proves this. God is pleased to call all of us his children, even those with whom we have little to nothing in common. We've said this before. Because of that, I hope there's people in this room that you are friends with, and the only way you can explain your friendship is because of Jesus. Because we have a commonality in Jesus. Because we are sons and daughters. So let's look at that third point. The third purpose of the genealogy. It demonstrates the excellence of the person at the end of it. I see this play out. I see this play out now, especially in political campaigns. I think... You've heard it a lot with each campaign season. You know, you'll see the ad, I'm the son or daughter. I'm the son or daughter of somebody. Or I'm the, or I'm the grandson and granddaughter of somebody. It's a, it's a powerful strategy. It's meant to point to somebody who's come before, highlight the positive attributes of that person, which then turns it around to glorify the person at the, at the end, the person now. I remember an ad, I remember a political ad once that totally won me over because the candidate did a, did a television ad with his sweet, dear mom, his sweet, dear old mom, and she was so lovely. And I was like, yes, I believe you. He's great. You're so wonderful. That did it for me. She was a hero, and she demonstrated the excellence of her son. At least that was the strategy, and it worked. But in this genealogy, Matthew isn't trying to manipulate anyone into believing something that isn't true about the person at the end of the list. He's not picking and choosing people who give the appearance of excellence. He intentionally includes unimpressive, sinful men and messed up, sinful women to say something powerful about the person at the end of the list, and it's this. God doesn't mind having unimpressive, messed up people in his family tree. He can make something beautiful out of it. What is it in your life that you believe disqualifies you from being a part of God's family tree? Do you have a, do you have a Rahab moment? Do you have a Bathsheba moment? Have you ever felt like an outsider or that you don't belong like Ruth? Have you ever felt insignificant or unimpressive? 
Do you believe the lie that says any of these things are so true or you are too far gone and it's keeping you from seeing the good news? I know that many of you believe right now that there's some glitch in your life so big that God cannot possibly do anything with you, that God could not possibly want you. Here's the good news. God is not afraid to call you son or daughter. He is not afraid to have you in his family tree. And like Rahab and Ruth will delight in making it known that you are his. This week as we celebrate Christmas, the coming of King Jesus, I hope we remember that his birth is only important because of what his death and resurrection would bring. A firm and steady place in God's family. Listen to these words of the prophet Isaiah and see if you can hear the echoes of what we get to celebrate this week. This is chapter 53, verses 1 through 5. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But listen to this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are what? Healed. We are healed. That's the person at the end of this list. Matthew says to me and you, meet Jesus. Here he is. He's different. He's not what you expected. His arrival didn't happen the way you thought it would, but he is the one you have longed for, the one you have hoped for, the one that can take all the reasons you think you don't belong and turn them upside down, invite you to the table which he has prepared in advance for you, and proudly call you son and daughter. Let's pray. God, I thank you that this is true. That through the birth of your son, which revealed the fulfillment of all of these promises that you told us through the prophets and through the words of the Old Testament, that your son would come, that he would be our king, and that he wouldn't look at us with anger or shame or disappointment, but that he would be proud to call us his son or his daughter. Father, I pray as we move into this week to celebrate your birth, that we would be mindful of this truth, that no matter what we think we have experienced, 
no matter what we have done that we think keeps us from being in your family tree, that your son says something different about that. That your son came to flip that on its head and that we can run to you, we are accepted by you, and we are approved by you because of what you have done. Thank you, God, for the truth of this. In Jesus' name, amen.